Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Next up, another comedy legend, Paul Feig. Paul created the TV show Freaks and Geeks. He directed Bridesmaids and Spy. He's directed episodes of 30 Rock, The Office, Arrested Development, and Mad Men. He is a legend. And I haven't even gotten into his acting role on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. This is, I think, his fourth time on the show? Maybe more than that. Frankly, I am losing count. (laughs) I think the first time he was on the show, I was still in college. When Paul isn't appearing on Bullseye, he keeps plenty busy. He helped produce the new HBO show, Minx, which is a period comedy about the first women's erotic magazine. He also helped make the new Fox sitcom, Welcome to Flatch. Welcome to Flatch is a mockumentary show based on the British comedy, This Country. Flatch is set in the town of Flatch, Ohio, and it explores the lives of that town's various residents. In this clip from the show's first episode, two locals talk about how they're gearing up for the town's annual Scarecrow Festival. Scarecrow Festival is pretty much like the biggest and best day of the year. People make scarecrows, they put them up all over town, and everyone votes for which one's best. And you're looking at the winner. Like, I have a killer design in a prime location this year, right on the green. Like, the guy with that spot last year won the whole thing. And his was pretty much like some freaking used clothes and twine. Winner gets a hot air balloon ride. Yeah, and you're on the front page of the Flash Patriot. It's so dumb. Oh, and you throwing a frying pan in the air isn't? A, the skill toss takes real skill. B, there's a trophy. Uh, fine, I will take my nan on the balloon. I don't care. She don't even like heights, and you know that. About to be in the Mile High Club with my grandma while you're on the ground crying like a little baby. I haven't cried since last year, and you know that. Paul Feig. <laughs> Welcome back to Bullseye. It's nice to see you. Oh, Jesse, it's so good to see you too, my friend. I'm a big supporter of hot air balloon rides. <laughs> I don't think I would be comfortable going on a hot air balloon ride, but I like the idea of a hot air balloon ride. Yeah, my problem with a hot air balloon ride is I always think, what if you just keep going up and up and up, and then you end up in outer space, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it doesn't make sense to come down. <laughs> it's the classic balloonsman dilemma. <laughs> <laughs> what goes up, I apparently must come down. Congratulations on all these uh, films and television shows uh, that you've made since the last time you were on the show. Thank you, sir. Why don't we start talking about Welcome to Flatch? Yeah. I watched the British show on which this is based, mm-hmm. and I, I watched one episode a year or two ago, mm-hmm. and um, I found it to be emotionally devastating. <laughs> Uh, because of the intensity of the comedy, I think is would be a way to say it. (laughs) It's very, it's a, it's thick with laughs. Let's just say that. And, and pathos and uh, can be very, very sad sometimes, which is why I just loved it. Yeah. So what made you see that and think this should be a network television sitcom? Well, it got sent to me. I've got a deal at Lionsgate, a television deal, and um, they have a deal with the BBC. And so they had this show, which is called This Country uh, in the UK, and sent it to 
me because I think because of my work on The Office and, um, you know, and I, and I, I think they knew it was going to be my sense of humor. And I absolutely fell in love with it because of all the things you mentioned and that I said, you know, it's a very low key but hilarious story about underdogs in a small town. And it's about this small town, you know, and it's like from the very beginning, people are like, Oh, you're not gonna make fun of small towns. Like, no, I'm from a small town. So no. And I just love the idea of small towns. There's a lot of comedy in them because it's, it's like high school, (laughs) you know, you're only around these people because you are geographically there, you know? And so everybody has to kind of get along and you have all these different personalities and, you know, weirdos and and normal people and it's a big kind of just a stew of potential comedy and and it also feels very real it's it's that you know the the fake documentary style which i love having worked on the office and having done arrested development it's the it's sort of the best way to do comedy on television because it's all in the moment you've got two cameras and these are usually like people from reality tv these camera people so they know how to cover a scene so i put you know two cameras at opposite sides of the room and each time we do a take we've shot the entire scene so you have such an ability to be loose with it and throw things at the actors and try this and they can surprise you and we always hire actors that you know are good at improv or at least have that ability to roll with it and so when you finish a scene, you've got so many different potential versions of a scene that it's uh, it's just very uh, fruitful for for laughs and for just great entertainment. You did writing on the show. You also directed the first few episodes. From what I understand, the show started as a sizzle reel or a, <laughs> a pitch reel that was all shot in one day. Yeah. yeah. What was that day like? Well, we didn't know it was going to be that, uh, you know, it was, we were shooting in North Carolina and we doing all this prep and everything. But as we were doing all the prep, you know, <laughs> here comes COVID and shows are shutting down and the town shutting, and not, not necessarily North Carolina, everywhere else was kind of, but North Carolina felt a little like a bubble a little bit. So we were kind of like, well, let's just keep going. And we were taking our safety precautions as much as we knew back then, um, so that we started that morning and shot for half a day. It was all outside. And it was going great. And then we heard that the only other show in North Carolina had just shut down. And we were like, oh, boy. But, you know, nobody was kind of saying shut down. But then we did this scene that's kind of halfway through the pilot where two of our characters are in a small room playing video games. And like six of us were packed in there. And I suddenly like went, "Okay, we can't do this. Like everybody out and said, I got to shut it down. I can't be the, the, we were the last show shooting in all of showbiz. I was like, I will not be the guy, you know, that puts these people in danger just so we can shoot something. But what we did was like Jenny Bix, you know, who show runs the show. And I, we basically said, let's get everybody, take them to a park outside where it's safe. And let's just shoot a bunch of scenes. Cause a lot of the show takes place outside anyway. So literally got everybody over there, said, okay, we're going to do this scene over here. Let's grab this prop, put it over here. We have the, the latrine, the infamous latrine that's uh, famous for Colonel Flatch. That, the art department, like, get that latrine over to the park. So we got that there, yeah, you know, and we just shot for the rest of the day a bunch of scenes. And what we were able to do then is go back, you know, back to L.A. and in quarantine and cut a, basically, I think it was like a, 15 minute sizzle reel out of this that sold the show that, that, that got the show picked up to series. What small town did you grow up in? I grew up in Mount Clemens, Michigan, uh, which is about 20 minutes outside of Detroit. 
But then I also, my mom had property in Canada on Lake Erie in this town called Colchester, which was very, very small. like a corner, basically. And then the big town next to it was called Harrow, which was one main street. We spent so much time there that I think I got even more small town feel out of that than I did Mount Clemens, which Mount Clemens is a small town. But as far as, you know, small towns go, it's kind of a big, small town. But, you know, that's where, you know, I mean, you grew up in the Midwest. You know, if you're not in a major city, that small town feel is there because you're just around the same people all the time. I mean, you built a significant portion of your early career by, you know, getting a stack of three by five index cards and writing every horrible indignity that happened to you in your childhood and adolescence on yes. them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then turning them into books and television shows. Yes, that's what I love about this this show, though, is I go like, oh, I've got a lot more terrible stories from my childhood that I can now put on Kelly and Shrub, who are these sort of arrested <laughs> development, you know, the youths in this town. So actually the two episodes that I wrote for this first season, uh, one's based on a, a dance school that I started with my neighbors when we were probably like, I don't know, 12 or 13. And it was just terrible. I literally came up with one dance. It was just this weird thing where you kind of kick your feet out to the side and then turn around and do the same thing. And we charged all the kids in the neighborhood a dollar. And then like an hour later, all their big brothers showed up and demanded the money back. <laughs> and then the other one was based on my career as being a magician in a small town. You know, I was, I was the, the magician who performed at all the nursing homes. That was my, uh, that was my circuit, Jesse. It's, this is not a place for you to brag, Paul. <laughs> it's an NPR interview. I'm very proud. So uh, let's talk about this dance. You gave a brief characterization of what happened in this dance. It involved kicking your feet out to the side. To give me a more specific description of what happened in the Feig dance. Was it called the Feig? No, it was, I don't know what it was called. Honestly, <laughs> I, 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 even I knew it was so bad. I didn't want my name on it. Let's just say that. Yeah, it was kind of like so. You're walking in a straight line. It's kind of disco inspired because discos used to have that kind of everybody do the like the same thing in unison. You know, you walk forward and put your leg out. So it was literally like step forward, touch your toe out to the side, come back, step forward, touch your opposite toe out to the side, come back, step forward, and repeat and repeat until you get to the where you have to turn around and then you come back and you do the exact same thing. And that's the dance that I taught all these kids and they wanted their money back. <laughs> How did you sell this dance? How did you convince anyone to give you a dollar? You know, Were I, you known <laughs> to be trustworthy with a dollar with regard to dance instruction? Well, we were always scheming something and we came up with a lot of haunted houses, but Haunted House felt like you only could charge like a quarter to come into that. And we, we actually we threw pretty scary Haunted Houses because we did that weird Midwestern thing where it's Haunted Houses where you make people touch stuff. You know? So it's like, well, peel grapes and that's it. Put your hand in here. It's eyeballs, you know, and then put spaghetti. All of these are worms and all that, which it, my least favorite way to go to a Haunted House. But if you're doing it, then you don't feel so bad. If you're, I'm in it, I don't want to do it. But um, no, so they, we were kind of known for doing all this kind of thing. Actually, in the same um, dance school episode, there's a whole thing with uh, Shrub's character makes these fake treasure maps and, and sells them to the kids. And I did that exact same thing. I made fake treasure maps for our neighborhood. The only thing I just made it go like an X marks the spot. I didn't think, oh, I should go bury something where X marks the spot. But just like, well, those are just like these treasure maps. <laughs> So these kids were going all over our neighborhood, <laughs> digging up other people's yards, looking for the treasure that didn't exist. 
And that brought the big brothers back once again to beat my <laughs> Do you think you had a reputation? Well, I, I had a, a weird reputation. I was either, I was known kind of as the funny guy because I, you know, was trying to be a stand-up and I would perform at all the talent shows and was just always trying to make people laugh so I wouldn't get beaten up. But I was also tall kind of tall and skinny and taller than most of the bullies in the school. So I became the target of the bullies because they knew I wouldn't fight back. And so all my bullies were short guys who were really mean and really like aggressive. But it was kind of like, come on, man. Like, you, you know, <laughs> it'd be one thing if I was like really you know, like Goliath that I'm going to you know, take you down. But it's just, I would just go, uh, you know, and just freeze up. You know, the locker room was just absolute hell for me because that's, you know, first you got to take off your clothes and you're going to get bullied while you're taking off your clothes. Like what's worse than that? And then they force you to take a shower, which, uh, you know, that's a whole I don't even know if they do that in school. anymore. <laughs> I hope to God they don't, because that was the most traumatic. Those were the most traumatic experiences, I should say, of my entire uh, high school career. I went to arts high school and it was in a converted special needs elementary school. Nice. So, you know, there were no facilities <laughs> for being nude in front of each other. Oh, you're so lucky. You're so and lucky. I, th- I, can't, I can't thank my lucky stars enough <laughs> that I never had to. But then later you join the YMCA and you're like, wow, I got to learn how to do this. <laughs> I know. Well, but you know what? You never learn how to do it. I, I, although some guys, I mean, literally just walk around naked like, hey, what's going to put their leg up on the bench and talk to you? He's like, I can't even deal with what's hanging in front of me right now, you know, but I just have never been comfortable with it. Although when I was in theater, I could drop trow at a moment's notice to get changed, you know, into my costumes backstage. That meant nothing. But it's something about if you're around, if, I don't know, something about if you're not there for the arts, you know, then it's uh, then I got to keep my clothes on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even more with Paul Feig after the break. We'll be back in a minute. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Paul Feig. He's the creator of Freaks and Geeks. He's the filmmaker behind movies, including but not limited to Bridesmaids, Ghostbusters, The Heat, and Spy, among many others. Lately, he has been working more in television. He helped produce the new HBO series Minx. He helped develop and direct Welcome to Flatch, a mockumentary sitcom airing now on Fox. Let's get back into our conversation. Were you present for the photographing of the many, many penises in <laughs> Minx? No, I, I, I was not around on that day, I have to say. That was actually, when they did that, they actually cleared the whole cast and everybody out. So they shot all the stuff with the cast watching, but the guys weren't there. And then they cleared everything out, and then they just had these guys come in and, and got these you know shots. And God bless these guys. I mean, they were really, you know, they... They volunteered to do this, and then they really went for it. I mean, there's some people that just really had a good time on camera. You can see them in the thing. The one guy's doing, like, you know, martial arts moves. That He's fantastic. Another guy's doing a helicopter, which uh, I now know that term. from. So uh, there you go. Look it up if you'd like to. Did you have to have uh, producerial meetings on Minx to decide what kind of and the extent of nudity you are going to have in a show about pornographic magazine with pictures of naked dudes? Yeah, it's all very, very, you know, 
looked over and looked after and you know and there's there's people around who do that and you know look if you watch my movies there's never a sex scene if there is a sex scene it's it's the most chaste thing you've ever seen in your life and it's just one shot and it zooms in on somebody's face and then it's over because i'm just like get me out of this i don't want to do this so you know but, but that's what i love about the show is even though there's a lot of nudity it's not lurid it's really you know, the first time you go to Bottom Dollar with with Joyce, uh, played by the great Ophelia Loveybond, you know, it's immediately a workplace. It's not sexy at all. It's like naked people are standing around smoking cigarettes, like waiting for their, their picture to be taken, you know. And that's what I loved about it. It's, it's like never trying to be titillating, you know. Um, and, and so we really just wanted to carry that into it of like, here comes this woman coming into this, you know, who's kind of a little uptight and she's being thrown into the wolves but then quickly kind of just realizes how workmanlike it is, you know, and how it's just a commodity, really. And and that's what's kind of great about it. And, and you know, and Jake Johnson playing Doug is just so great because he's so matter of fact about it, too. And he's not gross, you know. I mean, he's like a businessman who's got this thing he wants to do, but he really is, you know, good to his people. I uh, assume you've seen Cosmo? The whole country's seen Cosmo. It was a cheat. He was barely even naked, and women went crazy for it, just like you said they would. Yep. And it made me think that maybe we should give this magazine another shot. I know that male erotica is in the zeitgeist now, but we're still ahead of the curve. We could be on the newsstands before anyone else. Yeah. You know, Joyce, here's the thing. I go to any one of my magazines, and people are dying to hear what I have to say, but you act like I'm some sort of a clown until some fancy manhattan editor throws old burt reynolds on a bearskin rug and then i get your stamp of approval huh you know and it's also not a porno mag you know that that's the thing it's a you know it's a nudie mag that's what they do so i don't know i'm justifying a lot maybe but it's it's you know (laughs) it is it's the 70s and it's just very funny that's why i just i'm very very proud of the show and and ellen rapaport who who um, you know created this is just a genius why do you think you're still uncomfortable with sexy stuff in movies? I mean, your last movie was a was a romantic comedy. They often have sexy stuff in them. Well, but that's all flirty, you know, and, and kissing and all that stuff. Like that, even a kissing, I'm like, okay, we're into the kissing scene. No, I, I've never liked watching sex scenes in movies, you know, like especially like in the 80s. You know, it was always those Top Gun. There's always be some, you know extended scene with beautiful lighting and people in, and I go like, well, what am I watching? Why am I watching this? Am I getting anything from the character? Am I learning like, Oh, he really likes that. Or she really likes that. It's like, no, I'm just watching, you know, maybe you'll see somebody naked or whatever. But it's, so it's, I was kind of like, I don't, I don't want to watch this. I I'm all for like, they fall onto the bed and we pan up to the window and there's the moon, you know, <laughs> or we cut outside and a train goes into a tunnel and that's, you know, that's your, your metaphor if you want it. But, uh, yeah, I, I just don't, I don't know. It, it doesn't feel necessary to me, unless it's funny. I mean, that's, you know, when we did Bridesmaids, you know, we said, we're going to have a sex scene up front. Let's make it a hilarious sex scene, which is just, you know, the most athletic, weird, some dude's got a million things he wants, and this poor woman's trying to keep up, you know. That was funny to me, you know. that. But we literally shot that like it was a fight scene. I mean, that was literally like shooting a martial arts scene. What about the horny comedies of the 1980s? There's a lot of... Both. <laughs> Choose your words wisely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some some of the, I, I think there are a lot of the horny comedies of the 1980s that are, you know, I was I was young when those movies were new, but 
watching some of those movies now, they are really range from amoral to immoral. Yeah. But how how did you feel about, you know, the presence of boobs in comedy uh, <laughs> that was that really ran from like 1977 to yeah. 1989 inclusive? Yeah, well, I mean, it was interesting. I, you know, I overall, I, I didn't like horny comedies because what I hated about them was it was always a nerdy guy and his best friend who's like a total womanizer. And so it was always like, come on, man, we got to get laid, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I am a nerdy guy. I don't have any friends like that. Like, I don't, they're like my kryptonite. So why would I hang around with them? So I didn't like that. But then like, I thought, you know, at the time, Animal House was one of the, you know, I went to the opening night. My I was 13 and my cousin took me and we were in Canada in Windsor. And we went to this movie theater. It was completely sold out, all with college students. And I'd never heard an audience rock with laughter like that, you know, and, and, but it was a lot of it was like, you know, off, off color or naked or whatever, you know, and you're just like, Oh my God. But I don't know, for some reason that seemed really funny to me because it was more kind of fight the system. And then they were doing, you know, also, you know, doing sexy stuff too, sexy stuff, if you will. Um, and then also I thought the movie um, Kentucky fried movie was really funny. You know, just because of that. But there's a couple of things like they have these fake movie trailers with a lot of naked women. And but I was, it was more kind of like, oh, my gosh, you know, is a 13 year old. Even then, I think I was probably even younger than that when that came out. And you're just like, oh, my God, I'm seeing, you know, naked people. So but I find nothing's less interesting to me than the quest for sex. I don't find that fun. What I think is great is the quest for food. That's why the Three Stooges are funny to me, because it's always like trying to get a free meal. And that I think is hilarious. <laughs> That's why your current, you just recently optioned the comic strip Blondie. Yeah, exactly. uh, That's right. Andy Cap. Like, finally, right. giant sandwiches will have their moments. My Dagwood moments, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the funniest parts of your Ghostbusters movie, which was full of funny parts, uh, <laughs> such a funny movie, uh, was Chris Hemsworth as a sexy airhead. Um <laughs> Like he was such a great, he was such a, like, to me, I don't think there's anything funnier to me than a handsome dumb guy. Like a <laughs> handsome dumb guy, I could laugh at that, you know, <laughs> from now until for like a confident handsome dumb guy is the funniest thing in the world to me. I think it's hilarious too. It's funny though, because actually the part wasn't supposed to be that. It was supposed to be a guy who's like really just a bad employee who's kind of bored with his job. And I was like, Kevin, could you please do this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when Chris came in, the first day of shooting, he just kind of fell into this thing. You know, the first scene we shot with him he, where he arrives, he's just there and he's handsome, you know, and just and nice. But then we did this um, job interview scene that we, you know, did for hours and hours, cross shooting it. And that's where Chris started coming alive with these like jokes he was doing that were all kind of like, I, I, I don't understand this or I don't, you know, you know, my cat, you know, he came up with this thing, but my cat, you know, he's like, Oh, do you have a dog? Oh yeah. Yeah. What's his name? My cat. Or, I, I, I don't, I don't, I haven't seen it in a while, but he came up with this whole thing. And I remember the, you know, the, the ladies were going, looking at me like, did you write this? I go, no, Chris is doing this. And so he started going this whole thing. And then we had, you know, he had glasses that were reflective. And so I said, we've well, got to just, let's just take the, the lenses out. And so in the middle of a take, he just like put his hand through the, you know, the glasses and scratched his eye. <laughs> and, you know, and then Melissa and Kristen kind of jumped on that. And then he started playing it up. And we just started, then we just started writing all these jokes. And it was just so fertile 
But, you know, a lot of the people who don't like the movie you know, accuse me of like, oh, you're just trying to get back in men. It's like, no, Chris really wanted to do this. And he was too funny doing it. Like, I got, why am I going to stop that? So I got to write the line for him. Um, you know, a, uh, an aquarium is just a submarine for fish. So that's one of my favorite, <laughs> favorite jokes that I've ever written. So there you go. <laughs> Cheers. I mean, you have, and welcome to Flat, you have Sean William Scott. And his his character in the show is not especially dumb, but he's a, one of the great handsome dumb guy yeah. comedy actors i mean you know mm-hmm. him patrick warburton is another <laughs> yeah. person i would watch do anything exactly just truly anything as long as he like stares into the camera with that look that handsome people handsome men specifically can have yeah exactly and then and then they're dumb <laughs> like i just it's the greatest <laughs> what a gift no i mean when john john ham on uh 30 rock i mean it just it's like catnip to me if, if a handsome guy is cool insecure enough to be dumb then hats off so ryan johnson has been a guest on this show a a few times Mm -hmm. one of the all-time nice guys a brilliant filmmaker and Mm -hmm. he made he made i think the best uh, star wars movie and he got so much mess for it Mm -hmm. and uh from mooks (laughs) and mouth breathers (laughs) and i i talked to him about it one time i can't remember if it was on the air or not and he said well you know I really love Star Wars. I got to make a Star Wars movie that I'm so proud of. Mm-hmm. And uh, different people are going to have different thoughts about it, but you wouldn't expect anything different. And uh, I think I believed him <laughs> that he didn't feel bad about because I felt bad mm-hmm. about the people hating on his movie because I thought it was right. so great. He's such a nice man. Mm-hmm. I was like, what do you, what, these people are horrible. I feel horrible about this. <laughs> I felt the same way about Ghostbusters when people were being awful about Ghostbusters mm. because I loved Ghostbusters. I thought it was so funny. Thank and you. I knew I knew you and knew what a nice man you were <laughs> and are still, I think. Thank you. Yes. Um, <laughs> I'm, a mon- I'm a monster now. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like I could tell that it was, uh, you know, you're, you're a sensitive dude. And it was just like, it was hard in a non-professional context to bear all that weight of these people being awful about this movie that you made that was just a fun movie. Yeah, it was more of a surprise, I think, because I'd had such a great uh, relationship with the internet up until then because of Freaks and Geeks and Bridesmaids, you know, and, and even The Heat and Spy, people really like. So I, I was just unprepared. And that was the biggest thing, you know. So when the onslaught kind of started, when it, when it got, first got announced, it was more like, oh, like I reverted to being 13 years old in the locker room. And you're like, and, and it has the added thing these days of it comes right to your phone. It's like it's going right into your head, <laughs> you know. And, you know, I'd be at like breakfast with my wife and suddenly like somebody would get my email and send me like this, you know, threatening email. And it's just like, oh, man, like you might as well be sitting at the table with me and, you know, stabbing a fork into my leg right now. So it, it was more that. So I had to. I had to kind of grow up, you know, in the tender age of mid fifties, you know, just to kind of go, Oh, this stuff is still around, you know, but you also, you know, I completely understand people being uh, passionate about stuff and, you know, fandom is very passionate as we all know, and I'm passionate about stuff too, you know? So it just, we're so lucky to get to do what we do that you go, it can't all be just lovely. Like there's gotta be a downside to it, you know, and it's that kind of thing, but you know, you can't please everybody and all you can do is try to make something 
that you're proud of that you think other people are going to like. And trust me, we test screen these things within an inch of their lives as we're putting them together. And we don't put out something like, well, no, nobody liked it, but we we like it. So we're going to lock picture, you know, <laughs> like you know, by the time we lock picture, we were getting you know, scoring in the 90s and you know, getting all these really high scores and, and just getting big laughs. So, you know, that's all you can do, Jesse. You can just make the stuff and it belongs to the world. One time my therapist said to me years ago, my old therapist, he goes, Jesse, do these people know you? <laughs> yep. He was one of those only asks questions therapists. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You wait for the answer. And uh, <laughs> well, who, you know, actually it was, uh, I heard somebody in an interview saying that Pitbull gave them advice that I, to this day, I go, like, this is so great. And they say, well, they weren't on social media. And he's like, why do you want all that negativity coming into your phone and into your life? And it's like, you know what? You're right. Sadly, if you're in the business, you kind of can't get off social media because, you know, just need it for promotion and just, to, you know, keep up with all the majority of nice people that are out there. But you just have to go like, all right, like, you know, just talk to the nice people, gloss past the people who aren't being nice and, uh, and get on with your life. Because I turned 60 this year, Jesse, and sometimes I go like, really? So I'm getting tortured by people. <laughs> people I don't know are probably half my age or, or less. And it's like, all right, let's just, you know, let's, let's, let's move on. I think there are artists who make work where perhaps it's as a defense against people, you know, not liking them or whatever, but where, you know, it is inherent in the work and they are comfortable with the idea that they are going to alienate people. You know, there are right. there are artists who are like, well, some people will get it and some people won't. The yeah. ones who don't can go suck a lemon. Right, exactly. That's exactly how they put it, by the way. <laughs> yes, exactly. They're very polite. Uh, but you're not that kind of artist. Like, you certainly, you know, the thing that made your career freak, as, a, as a writer and director, Freaks and Geeks, was something that was you know, that found a very passionate and for a network TV show, narrow audience. But, but like when you make movies, I really get the impression that you are trying to make movies that make everyone happy. Oh, totally. I mean, I'm a, I'm a people pleaser. I'm the very, if you look it up in the dictionary, there's my picture. You know, I, that's all I want to do. And I want to please everybody. I know I can't, but it doesn't mean I don't think all the time, like, oh, maybe this one, everybody will, <laughs> you know, but it's also the, the thing of if you want to make commercial movies, the movies have to make money, you know, and, and so, you know, early in my career, it's kind of like, oh, I'm going to do this. And, you know, I, like right after Freaks and Geeks, I did a movie called I Am David, which, you know, I was very proud of, but I think in my heart of hearts, I knew it was completely not commercial and it was proven to be very much not commercial, you know, but that was kind of in this moment of like, Oh, if I do this, I'll win awards, which now I like all I do is tell people, you know, when I lecture to film students, anything like don't try to win awards. Don't do anything you think only because you go like this will be critically praised or this will be cool or I'll win awards because then you're not pleasing anybody. You know, then, then you're only in service of something that, that doesn't exist. You know, I mean, the greatest moment of my career was when uh, Bridesmaids got nominated for two Oscars. I mean, trust me, none of us went into Bridesmaids going like, hey, I bet we might get nominated for some Oscars for, for when Melissa goes to the bathroom in the sink. You know, it's like, that's Oscar bait. But, you know, but it happens. So you go, like, if we do it right and people really like it. But also it's like, who cares about awards? Because, you know, movies that we lost to, I mean, they're, they're really good movies, but... I, 
immodestly, I will say, I don't think some of those movies, people don't come up to people and go like, I've watched your movie 50 times, you know, and whenever I'm sad, I watch your movie, you know? And to me, that's like the greatest thing. You go like, we, I want to be that thing that just makes you happy, you know? And, you know, I like to do movies that can get a little dark, you know, like a simple favor and all that, but I always make sure I always want them to be good natured, you know, at their base. And I want them to be, you know, people win in the end, you know, whether it's a small victory like a Freaks and Geeks or whether it's a big victory, you know, in some of these other movies. I, you know, that's the message I want to put out into the world. You know, I, I can't be the, you know, the old European filmmaker who's like, uh, the world is terrible. And then everyone dies. You know, it's like, I'm glad those movies exist because they're fun to watch. And I'm no, not fun, but, uh, you know, they uh, sober you up. But um, no, I just want to make people laugh. Uh, that's, you know. When you get into comedy, you better not be, ah, who cares what they think? Because then you can be out of comedy really fast. We'll finish up with Paul Feig after a quick break. In just a minute, he has his own gin. I think this is our first ever signature gin guest on the program. He'll tell me about picking the flavors to make gin. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with writer and director Paul Feig. He directed films like Bridesmaids and Spy. His latest project is a TV show called Welcome to Flatch. Let's get back into our conversation. Do you ever feel like there's a part of you that's like, you know what? I got to get edgy. I got to do something edgy. (laughs) No, you know, I don't because, you know, again, when I... I learned so much from doing that movie, uh, um, I Am David, because, you know, Freaks and Geeks was was a critical success. It was a you know, financial knot. And then I got sent a lot of high school stuff to direct. And I was like, well, I just did it. And also that, that was the whole reason I did it, because I wanted to tell my own personal story about it and show it in the way that I'd never seen it done before. So I didn't quite know what to do. And I was, I couldn't sell another show. Everybody wanted my voice, but then nobody really wanted what I would bring them. So... This thing came along and it was this book that all apparently all school kids for a long time here in Europe would read. And it hit me because my mom had died right at the end of Freaks and Geeks. And it was about a kid trying to find his mom. And so I took it on, but I did take it on. I remember talking to my agent. He's like, Mike, you'll be like Steve Zalian if you make a movie like this. I was like, yeah, oh my gosh. So, so I got into this kind of like, I'll do more of a drama and it'll be arty and all this and work, you know, three years from, you know, conception to getting it out and everything and a bomb and just going like, what did I do? Like I, all that time I spent and I, I'm proud of them. Like, again, you're always proud of the movies you make, but you know how I knew this movie was going to be a bomb, Jesse. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, cause you kind of, you know, I always say nobody sets out to make a bad movie. So I was kind of like, okay, this will be great. People love it. So we did a test screening at Irvine and it went great. I mean, like we got a big score, big applause at the end. People loved it. And so I, Oh my God, I did it. Like it made the greatest movie of all time. And I'm we're out with my producers and we're celebrating in the lobby. And I look and people are coming out of the theater and these ushers have these big stacks of, of like white envelopes and they're handing a white envelope to each person. And I go, what's that? And they said, well, when we were trying to recruit an audience and we, you know, they read the description of the movie, nobody wanted to come. So we had to tell them we'd give them $5 each if they showed up. <laughs> it's like, well, that movie's going to bomb. <laughs> and it did. <laughs> So, but no, but I have no illusions to try to be Mr. Cool Guy. You know, look, would I like to win an Oscar? That would be great. 
But am I going to? No. Maybe one of those lifetime achievement awards where they go like, oh, that poor guy. He tried really hard. Speaking of thirsty FIG projects that I support <laughs> wholeheartedly, I've really enjoyed your transformation from man to lifestyle brand <laughs> in me. the last decade or so. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> from a guy who was just waiting to have enough gray in his hair to always wear a suit on set to giving yourself the gift of carrying a cane. Mm -hmm. Walking stick, sir. Walking stick. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, to now, <laughs> cocktail impresario. There you go. There you go. You know, my whole career has been driven by cocktails. I'll just tell you that right now. <laughs> um, I've always said that you were the Walton Goggins of your generation. Uh, that's a huge compliment. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, you know, certainly... Would some say you're the Cabo Wabo Cantina of your generation? Yeah, sure. Sure, why not? I'll take but it. He's doing it's all right successful. for himself. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> so you have a gin now. Do you have a favorite gin drink? A martini. Martini is is the world's greatest drink. And a real martini is a gin martini. When a bartender says, when you say I want a martini, and they said vodka or gin, you go, a real martini is gin. Please don't ask me for vodka. And then they'll throw you out of the bar for being insufferable <laughs> like I am. <laughs> Jesse, my one superpower is I make the world's best martini. So there you go. Paul, I don't drink, but I, when beverages are described to me, you know, I'll, I'll occasionally taste my wife's fancy cocktail if we're somewhere that serves fancy cocktail. I, I always enjoy that. But when liquors are described to me, I have to say gin sounds horrible. Yeah. I mean, it really sounds like the worst. When people say the things that it tastes like, yeah. I think, well, those aren't things I want to eat. <laughs> exactly. You want that anywhere near your mouth. Exactly. Well, I mean, but here's the thing. This is why I created a gin uh, is because I think we've all had really bad experiences with gin in our younger days. You know, for me, it was like at 12 years old. We were down in some kid's, you know, parents' basement who had a bar. It's like, gin, I know what that is. And you're like, oh, and it smells like pine salt. And you're just like, this is terrible. But when I you know, was getting into cocktail culture in my 20s and found out that a real martini is gin martini, I had to like go, I got to train myself to like gin and kind of got used to it. But then I just went on this kind of worldwide search for 20 years of, to find one that I thought was, was smoother and didn't have that thing. And I found ones that were close, but I was like, if I can make my own, I know how to do it. And so that's where my, my gin came from. And, and um, we've won tons of awards, my friend. What are the notes, Paul? Tell me about the notes. The notes, there's a very light citrusness to it, but a little bit of a floral in there mixed into it. But then it's got a very peppery, um, you know, aftertaste or whatever, you know, it, afterburn, I guess we call it. Uh, it's very smooth. Um, and it's just, I'm, I, I'm more proud of this than I am of my movies, I think. <laughs> Your face immediately lit up. And I don't think it was because you, like, it didn't light up with dollar signs in your eyes. No. It, it lit up with excitement for gin talk. <laughs> I bring it on, man. Yeah, because also this is not something I put my name on because Paul Feig putting his name on something doesn't mean anything. <laughs> you know, this was not a vanity project. This was like uh, five years in the making with uh, Minhas uh, Distillery out of Canada. And they're amazing. And um, yeah, we just we designed the bottle, everything. This was like a labor of love i built this like a movie <laughs> well paul i'm i'm always so happy to get to talk to you it's nice to see you and thanks for all this wonderful work i i'm always happy when one of your movies movies is out and i get to go see it or uh, I, I get to see your work on the tv screen it, it's always a joy well thank you jesse you're the best and i, and I miss uh, i miss i miss be hanging out you you me and elvis and all that kind of stuff we gotta we gotta do yeah. it again when we're all back in the same city 
Paul Feig, everyone. His two newest TV projects are Minx and Welcome to Flatch. You can catch them on HBO and Hulu, respectively. Both of them are very charming and funny. If you imbibe and you want to give Paul's gin a shot, I'm not a drinker, but I bet, because I know Paul, that it is great. It's called Artingstall's Brilliant London Dry Gin. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. You know, I was driving my uh, son to school in Altadena, just northeast of Los Angeles. Eight o'clock in the morning, driving down one of the main drags in this little town. Guess what I saw? A coyote walking around like it owned the darn street. Southern California for you. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio, Valerie Moffat, and Richard Roby. I'll tell you what, me and Richard went to see Sons of Kemet the other day at the Lodge Room here in Los Angeles. Uh, Sons of Kemet past guests on Bullseye. Uh, wow, that was a great show. Uh, if you get a chance to see Sons of Kemet, oh boy, that was, that was a heater. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation, written and recorded by The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and thanks to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find us in any of those places. Follow us there. We'll share with you our interviews. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.